Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly leadership podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. I serve as your host each year and each episode now in our sixth year, 350 plus episodes taped that air and release every Tuesday and Friday, both in audio and video. This is a podcast that Franklin Covey envisioned seven, eight years ago to really help to change the landscape of leadership around the world. We are, we think, the most trusted leadership firm globally, founded, of course, by Dr. Stephen R. Covey, the author of The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. This book has gone on to be one of the most consequential leadership and personal development books in history, co-founded with his friend and one of my heroes, Hiram Smith. Now, 40 years in business, we have tens of thousands of clients around the world who all are dedicated to a single unifying mission, which is to create more effective organizations, better leaders, better high school principals, better town council members, better parents, spouses, friends, and humans. Our mission is to inspire greatness and people and organizations everywhere. And it's why this podcast has become, I think, so influential. Not because of me, certainly, but because of the guests that we have twice a week that have a strong point of view on how to make the world a better place. We have interviewed best-selling authors, business titans, celebrities, athletes, people who have survived amazing tragedies, plane crashes in Pakistan, kidnapping and rapes here in America, and their survival and survival all are featured here to help you be more resilient, to align yourself with principles that govern human behavior. We are not a political company. We are a global public company based in Utah in the U.S. We don't make contributions to political organizations or to candidates. We obviously believe in a fair and free government. We believe passionately in democracy as an American company. And we're also not afraid of some controversy. We've interviewed uh, controversial figures like Ray Dalio, who is a very famous multi-billionaire who has opinions on the rise and fall of democracy. We've interviewed Peter Zion, one of the most brilliant and perhaps even controversial geopolitical strategists. And today's interview will be different than that, but I, I would say it's gonna be an interesting discussion around the future of democracy. Our guest today is Matthias Doffner. He is the author of this book, The Trade Trap, How to Stop Doing Business with Dictators. You know him as the CEO of Axel Springer SE. It is the owner of U.S. media brands, including Politico, Insider, and Morning Brew, and it is the largest digital publisher in Europe. He also serves on the board of directors for Netflix and Warner Musical Group and has written this very provocative, invaluable book on really what is the future of the world look like, one of a couple of different ways. Matthias, welcome to On Leadership. Hi, Scott. It's a pleasure to be with you. Delighted to have you here. Uh, Matthias, you are joining us from uh, Berlin, Germany, where you are, an, you are uh, uh, I would say, an expert in, in, in digital media, probably print media. You have a personal passion around music and arts and literature. And I don't know you as a controversial political figure. You're not an elected figure, figure, as far as I know, not yet. But you've written this remarkable book called The Trade Trap. And it really is a... It's a treatise on what the future of the world looks like and what does the rise or perhaps end of democracy look like? What is America's and Europe's role in the future landscape of freedom, of free markets? It was a book that was controversial. You actually considered writing this book 
and it was not well received in the publishing community, would you rewind a little bit and talk about the genesis behind this book and how it became from very unpopular to very popular almost overnight? Well, Scott, I'm a journalist and a citizen, and in both uh, roles, I'm really worried about democracy. Um, I've seen the numbers of Freedom House over the years, 17 years of decline in uh, democracy. Countries are downgraded from free to partially free to unfree. And at the same time, I was uh, meeting a lot of people as a businessman from democratic markets and undemocratic markets and uh, collected a couple of experiences, also bad experiences in non-democratic markets. And then I started to be worried about German energy policy towards Russia because I saw the uh, more and more aggressive Russia under Putin and uh, the fact that under Angela Merkel, the German gas consumption went up from 35% at the beginning to more than 65% when she left office. That was a clear indication we have created dependency from Putin. And then we had to learn we have financed this Putin that started the war in Ukraine. And before the Ukrainian war happened, I, I thought about writing such a book to change the trade policy concept and strengthen democracies with a different trade policy. And uh, in the expose, in the, in the kind of um, proposal of the book, I predicted an invasion of Russia in Ukraine as a whole. And uh, when that happened, I got a call from uh, a friend and literary agent who said, you've got to write that book. And that was then the moment when I finally did it. Before that, as you said, a lot of business people and colleagues and also some experts from the publishing industry advised me not to do it. I would ruin my reputation. And in fact, in the book, you actually reference some statistics from an independent think tank called the Freedom House that has recorded a decline in democracy and now speaks of what they call a long freedom recession. It has downgraded more and more countries from, quote, free to partly free, and then more recently, partly free to not free. And in fact, the statistics, the stats show that only 20% of the world's population now live in countries this think tank deems as free, and 40% live in countries or states that are not free. This is the highest percentage change since 1997. You would argue in your book, without becoming a fear monger, but I would, I would argue you are a, a realist and a very practical person. You're just kind of calling it as you see it. You would argue that perhaps the first time in several generations Democracy is on a steep decline as a force of the world order. Am I wrong? No, you are absolutely right. I think that's an objective fact that democracy is in decline. But if we then look at our business policy and trade policy, we have to acknowledge that this old paradigm that was called change through trade, the more business you do, with non-democracies, the more democratic, the more freedom-oriented they are going to be, that this paradigm turned out to be wrong. Change through trade may have happened, but so far, mainly to the advantage of non-democracies, it has strengthened non-democracies. We spoke about Russia, which has been clearly strengthened by European energy policy. We see in uh, the current events in the Middle East, a couple of countries that has been through trade relationships with European players and partly even with the US, strengthened financially in order to be able to fund and sponsor the terrible terror attack of Hamas. 
And uh, if we look to China, then we see the biggest uh, danger and the biggest threat for democracy out there. When China became member of the WTO in 2001, the contribution to China's world GDP was not even 4%. Today, it's north of 18.5%. At the same time, the US contribution went down from 32% to 24%. And China became, in the meantime, the second biggest economy in the world based on the status of a developing country. Can you imagine that the second biggest world economy is considered to be a developing country and with that enjoys a lot of privileges and exemptions that lead to completely asymmetrical trade? If we continue that, we will further strengthen non-democratic players, we will weaken democratic economies, and the dependency from democracies to non-democracies will lead to political influence from non-democratic economies and systems. And that is going to destroy our open society model. That's why I think it is late, but not too late, to think about new alternatives, new ways to do business. I don't know that the average American really thinks about democracy. It's all they know, it's all they've experienced. Uh, the number of Americans that don't have passports is shockingly high, which means they've not traveled or been to countries that aren't deemed free. For a German, a European, who might see, who might, you know, the, the government of Germany and of the European Union is a little bit different, of course, than that of the U.S., but we have more in common than we do perhaps in Russia or China or certainly Syria, Iran, North Korea. You write in the book, democracies are far from perfect. They make lots of mistakes, including ones that resemble or are even identical to those made by autocracies. But there's a big difference. In democracies, you get to criticize the mistakes. There are almost always people who do, and there are enough of them, and then there are consequences. They're not going to jail. Now, when you storm the Capitol, you go to jail, and you should. But in America, you're right, we're able to critique and criticize our form of government in hopes to make it better and better and better. Democracy is not perfect. Would you argue that these large countries like Russia and China, even some Middle East countries where American intervention has tried to put democracy in them, are you, would you argue that there are cultures and countries where democracy will never be the right form of government for that country or that generation, but we shouldn't let that stop the, the free societies of the world to try to influence them. How would you balance that? I, I don't see Russia or China becoming a democracy in my generation. I think that's naive. Some presidents in the US and others have tried to make that happen in countries and it's kind of failed miserably. What's your take on that? So first of all, uh, of course it takes time, uh, but it would be a bit, I think, arrogant to say, you know, these guys, they had bad luck. They were born in a country where there's no democracy. So forever they will be under that authoritarian regime. And there are examples where over generations and sometimes during coups and revolutions, um, systems have changed. So uh, I think in theory, every human being should have access to a free and open society model. Now the question is how to achieve it. The second observation in the context of your question would be, I sometimes struggle with this kind of comparison of non-perfect uh, democracies with pretty perfect autocracies or totalitarian systems. And then people tend to say, well, both make, make mistakes and the truth may be somewhere in the middle. I don't buy that. I think there is a fundamental difference between these two systems. And take a very concrete and topical example. Let's take Israel and its neighbors. 
in Israel, it was a concrete uh, case that the president of Israel was accused because of sexual harassment uh, of his uh, secretary. He had a court case. In the end, the president went to jail because it was proven to be uh, to be valid. If in Iran, for example, a woman would accuse the president to have sexually harassed her, or even worse, she would get stoned a few weeks uh, later. So it is total imbalance. It is total, totally uncomparable. And that's why I think we have to be very careful. And now to the very last aspect of your question, you said not every American is dreaming or thinking about democracy every day. I can assure you the same is true in Europe. The same is true everywhere. So it is something where we should not only discuss the kind of very highly political and theoretical aspects. We should also illustrate that it is about our very lifestyle. We may not discuss democracy, but we enjoy every day to go out to a club and enjoy a nightlife. We enjoy to buy goods that we find attractive. We enjoy to travel freely and safely. We enjoy to have a debate with our friends and be very outspoken, if not provocative, to criticize our governments and other elites. We enjoy that. And that's all not for granted. And it's something that doesn't exist in other systems. And I think we, in that sense, should be a bit more aware of what we have to lose. Uh, Matthias, just prior to the pandemic, I was in China for some business. Uh, I've been to China multiple times on behalf of um, uh, professional pursuits. And I was in a suite in a Hyatt in Shanghai, like on the 40th floor of a building. And it was a multi-room hotel room. And I was walking back and forth between the living area where CNN was on and in the bathroom. And you know, I have been to 50 countries in the last 20 years. I'm a fairly seasoned professional travel traveler. I'm sure I've made a lot of political faux, faux pas. Haven't been arrested. Um, fortunately, but I remember watching CNN and every minute or two, this TV would go quiet. And I would come back out and I would think, oh, there must be some bad reception. And I would go back into the bathroom and I would be listening to Wolf Blitzer or someone on TV in America on CNN. And then I came to realize, it dawned on me, oh my gosh, they're censoring it. And that seems so natural, that would never happen in the US. And for me, I realized, no, there isn't, there isn't like a telecommunications issue. There's someone that is like hitting a button every you know, 90 seconds when something is said that they don't approve or like. And it was so, so natural for the vast majority of the world that doesn't live under a free democracy. And so anathema to people like me, that's all we know. Here's why I share that story. I think you wrote in the book that in 2036, that China will deplace America as the largest economy in the world. I thought it was going to be sooner than that, but I think directionally you said that. You don't have to be a, a, a rabid follower of the news to see what is happening in the world. Whether you like it or support it, it is clear that Russia and China are aggressively moving towards an alliance to try to keep America busy, <laughs> distracted, fumbled, uh, and all these excursions. And, and I think if we don't, we being the, 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 the percentage of the world that wants to live in an imperfect democracy with freedom of choice, that the cycle of democracy is going to become the minority government rule in, in the world and that China and Russia are going to unite and rise, whether it be through African, intervention and projects, South American funding through Taiwan, Ukraine, 
NATO's influence will wane. Maybe you could give us your own opinion on how you see that world order shifting and what everybody listening or watching to this podcast worldwide should be aware of and be talking about if they don't want that to happen. Because I can tell you, I'm an American. I think I have a global worldview. I don't think every country is gonna be like America, nor should they be. But I do not want the alliance of Russia and China to be the default um, you know, leaders of the world order. So I am a passionate lover of free trade and of the principle of competition. And if two economies are competing and one economy is growing faster and doing a better job and is becoming the biggest economy in the world, I, I'm fine with that. I accept that. That's competition and the outcome. But what we should not do is mix up competition with unfair competition. And the competition between China and its very clear ambition and um, publicly expressed ambition to become the dominating power and the biggest economy of the world um, will be achieved with tools that are very different than the tools that democratic economies use. China is a super capitalist system, but it is state-led super capitalism. It is, you could say, totalitarian capitalism, where the state defines the rules, if necessary, regulates or subsidizes in dimensions that we cannot imagine, and also enjoys, as I said, in the WTO privileges as a developing country that are totally self-damaging and destructive for their democratic competitors in the, in the WTO. And that's why I think we have to change something. And we have seen the numbers, we have seen the developments, we have many, many examples. Let's take the photovoltaic uh, energy business and solar systems where China basically had zero market share. Europe was totally dominant with 44 billion of subsidies in two or three years. China took it basically all and today there's almost zero in Europe and everything in China. We can continue and let that happen, but it is very self-damaging. And if we are now saying, well, maybe it is too late because there is the dependency. Take the German car industry, the automotive industry, they're selling more than 40% of their units of VW in China. So there is also dependency. Is it too late? I think it is not too late for one simple reason. Yes, less and less people are living in democracies, but the contribution of democratic economies to world GDP is still around 70%. So we have the upper hand. It's on a declining path, but it is still important and it is attractive. And if we would now imagine an alliance of democracies, and here the transatlantic alliance should be the basis, the first step, America and Europe together, and then Japan and Latin America and India, and uh, of course, uh, Australia and Canada and others are joining, then really a very powerful combination of countries that are doing tariff-free trade with each other would arise. And then other countries who do not comply to the uh, admission uh, uh, criteria could still decide to either open up, get more democratic and more freedom oriented and comply to the rules of rule of law, human rights and CO2 targets. And then they enjoy tariff free trade too and get part of the become part of this group or they stay where they are and then they have to pay high tariffs. I think that would be a slightly fairer and more promising system than the existing one. 
in many ways, Matthias, your book, The Trade Trap, is just riveted with, with amazing stories. It kind of reads like a political thriller. In a moment, I'm going to have you share the story of your time with Russian President Putin. But you also shared a fascinating story about during COVID, the Australian government had made some calls for China to be a little more transparent, a lot more transparent, I believe it was, about the, the COVID uh, explosion in their country and the, the punitive response that came from China. Would you just remind everybody of what that tit-for-tat looked like between Australia and China? Well, p- particularly uh, interesting was the consequence uh, for Australia. Right. While they were asking for more uh, transparency, they were in a pretty brutal way discriminated by China. And for a small country, a uh, smaller country like Australia, this is uh, quite a vulnerable uh, position. So in a way, I appreciate the courage that the Australians have shown in that context with regard to China and trade relationship with China, which they endangered de facto by asking for more transparency. Uh, And they did a similar thing also in dealing with big uh, digital platforms. So uh, there is some courage uh, in the the Australian DNA, and it shows that you can uh, achieve things. But of course, it is always easier, and particularly for a country like Australia to do that in a group, to not do it standalone. And if we shift now to a bigger level to the United States and its business relationship with China, I think if the United States would seriously and completely decouple from China unilaterally, and there seem to be a growing almost nonpartisan consensus that the US have to change very fundamentally their trade policy, and maybe decoupling is the only option, then I think that would weaken the United States And it would not solve the problem at the same time, because China could still live in an environment where they are doing business with other economies and reduce or limit to close to zero their business with the U.S. If the U.S. would team up with the EU, so 300 million people here and 500 million people here, and the two biggest uh, kind of uh, the the, the biggest and the third biggest economy of the world together, uh, then I think that would be a serious case. That would create, by the way, also a leverage for negotiation power at the negotiation table with China, with Russia, with some Islamist oil caliphates, where then uh, an alliance of democracies, and I am saying the transatlantic alliance would only be the basis. I hope that it would grow immediately and India and Latin America and others would join. Then I think something is created that is really strong and powerful. And where even China couldn't just afford to say, well, then we do it without them. And this is the this is the situation that I would like to get in. And if I'm suggesting that, Scott, I'm not thinking that that can be achieved tomorrow or in a year from now. It is a process probably over a generation, 25 years. But we have to start at a certain point. If we just wait and hope that the China problem will be solved alone because there is a little kind of crisis of the Chinese economy and a slowdown, then I think uh, we we are in a dangerous place uh, because that may take too long and the damage may be too big. So let's rather use this moment of weakness of the Chinese economy to say this is now the moment to join forces and come up with a con- constructive and inviting proposal for democratic economies. Matthias, if it's a fact that Russia and China are building uh, a new alliance, to build and reorder the world. What role does India play in this? This is the largest democracy in the world. I don't think the Indian democracy mirrors that of, you know, 
the American democracy, 1.3 billion people. Obviously, their economy is different than that and than the U.S. What, what, what's the role that India, it seems like India is the wild card in the world. That is a very, very important uh, question. So, first of all, this constellation that here is an alliance of non-democracies that are gaining power and getting stronger and stronger and getting more and more aggressive. And on the other hand, there is uh, there are the economies of the democratic world. It's an objective fact. We see it. And we see the symbols uh, of the images of Putin and Xi uh, standing together in Beijing and uh, discussing Silk Road business policies and so on and so on. Now people are discussing usually it's brick against America and the EU. I don't share that because BRIC is Brazil and India on the one hand and China and Russia on the other hand. China and Russia are totalitarian societies and systems, whereas BRICS, whereas Brazil and India are non-perfect democracies. Of course, you can argue that there's so much corruption in India that you don't like what this or the last president uh, is doing in Brazil. You can even discuss limitations of media freedom close to censorship in, in India. Let's not be naive about it. But nevertheless, in the end, those are two very big democracies with free election, with the freedom of speech, with the freedom to assemble, and a lot of hard criteria that um, stand for democracy. So India is the crucial player. And we have to do everything to win over India. It's with four point, with 1.4 billion people, uh, population-wise, the biggest democratic market. Uh, it has a lot of growth potential. And it is also kind of me mentality-wise and historically a potential ally because India has a very critical stance towards China. So I think there is way more opportunity and we have to be inviting. We have to reach out to India. We have to embrace India and not to fight it. I think that is super important for the future of uh, democracy. I'll try to keep this question short, but I'm fascinated in your answer. Uh, we've seen what's happened in Hong Kong, right? Uh, in the last couple of years. We knew this was coming. This is not a surprise. It's kind of horrifying to free speech and democracy when Hong Kong reverted from British rule back to um, Chinese rule. Two years ago, if you would have asked me, did I think that Russia would have invaded Ukraine with tanks and guns and rapes and murders and all that, I would have said, no, the future of war is cyber. It's going to be around data and, 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 and not necessarily guns. I don't, mean to be, I don't mean to be naive about the, you know, the massive proliferation of militaries around the world. I mean, look what Germany has done in the last, last decade. If anybody wants to look at the case study of how German, the German parliament and your chancellor decided to uh, fund your military complex, that should be a eye-opener to the world on how you've moved from a much more defensive to offensive military posture. Um, what does the future of war look like? I mean, we see it in Ukraine every day on television right now. We see it in Israel. Are we going to see it in China and Taiwan? What does that future look like to you? Yuval Harari, the Israeli historian, wrote in a book that mankind uh, uh, overcame the three biggest uh, challenges of humanity, plague, famine, and war. And unfortunately, on all three levels, he was wrong. All three are still existing. And if it is about war, war is still surprisingly conventional. Look to the Russian-Ukrainian situation. It 
almost reminds of the First World War. Yes. And we think, I fully share that, and I wrote that in the book, that I was also expecting war would be a cyber war thing, highly sophisticated bots and AIs are fighting against each other and so on. No, suddenly we discover it is brutally medieval uh, uh, what is happening here. Uh, people killing other people with knives and rifles. And uh, I think we have to be realistic about it. Unfortunately, war is not over. And people are now saying, well, but China is so smart. They are so business oriented. They would never entertain a conventional war or they would never use military power. Well, let's look what they did when Nancy Pelosi traveled to Taiwan. Some movements in the military space that were quite telling. Look how they have increased their defense spendings and uh, their army is uh, unparalleled. So I would be very careful to predict that conventional wars are over and that all is going to be super sophisticated. I think with the instruments of AI and high tech, uh, war uh, still remains an option and war can be in the end still very, very brutal uh, as it used to be uh, centuries ago. Uh, again, I don't want to appear naive. I believe I read once where the Russian economy is roughly equivalent to the Texan economy, the size of Texas in the US. Uh, I think their political ambitions way out, out um, weigh their capacity. But look what's happening in Ukraine. It just, it, it, it's, it disgusts me and depresses me and marvels me that the world, the free democracies, have not more swiftly united to stop the Russian aggression. I mean, who would have ever thought that Sweden would join NATO? That, you know, I think, I think did Finland also join NATO? I think so. Was trying to? Yeah, Finland joined already, and Sweden is about to join. About to Finland join. is already a NATO member. Right. I mean, you yeah. know, you, you go to you go to Finland, and it's as if you're in Russia in terms of the culture and such, and so close to St. Petersburg. This is naive, I know, but I cannot believe there is an American politician that doesn't think that we should be continuing to do whatever it takes to support Ukraine to stop the Russian aggression because he's not going to start stop there. I recognize there are there are politics and home constituencies. I just I'm I'm really disappointed and horrified at how Ukraine is now almost left to defend for themselves. Yes, the US government is still sending money and arms as of recently. Yesterday a new package was passed, so are other governments, but how long is this going to go on? And it feels like the Russians are in it for the long game and they're just going to wait everybody out. I couldn't agree more. Um, I wrote it at the very beginning of the war and I was criticized to risk a nuclear escalation by asking NATO members to help uh, Ukraine substantially and join the United States in military uh, support with weapons and so on. I think it is very simple. What happens in Ukraine is a symbolic war. It is about the future of democracy and freedom. And it is about the question, how much do we allow a totalitarian aggressor? If Ukraine loses that war, we lose that war. We have decided to help and to intervene. So let's double up and not stop it halfway. Because at the moment, you're absolutely right, it doesn't look good. Russia has a lot of time, has a lot of people. And Russia is waiting also perhaps for political changes in other countries in order to take advantage of that. I think it is highly dangerous. We have no time to lose and we should double up. Is, is one man responsible for that entire catastrophe? It's never one man. It is uh, always um, 
a group of people and you could even say to a certain degree it is also a population because when germany started the terrible second world war and committed the genocidal war crimes during the holocaust uh, it also was not only adolf hitler it was uh, a large part of the population uh, that unfortunately supported that or driven by fear did not do anything against it so it is always more than a person but at the same time, I think it is important to distinguish it is not about the Russians. It is about an autocratic, totalitarian Russian regime. And it is not about the Palestinians. It is about a terrorist organization called Hamas. So we have to distinguish between people and uh, institutions. Having said that, I think in dealing with these um, uh, bad actors and dealing with them business-wise, I think we should not only discard, discuss it in a kind of very moral manner, we should also discuss it on a broader scale with regard to our credibility. We, company leaders, corporate citizens, we advocate stricter and stricter standards if it is about ESG. And we do that for very good reasons, if it is about diversity and inclusion. But what I cannot imagine is that the leader of a company is in the morning giving a speech about his new initiative uh, regarding LGBTQ plus uh, activities of his company. And in the afternoon, she or he would shift a lot of production to a country where a person gets sentenced to death because he is homosexual or uh, uh, a woman um, gets stoned because she was accused to have, uh, has, has, she has been accused for adultery or something like that. So, I mean, these double standards, they, they are simply not consistent. They are not credible. They are begotted. And I think also for that reason, we have to decide. I mean, either we say we don't give a damn about all these ESG topics, we just maximize profits, or we say, no, no, we have to do that. We do that for very good reasons. But then let's be at least a little bit consistent with regard to the systems that we strengthen with our business decisions. Matthias, you have written an important book. It may be in neon, but do not let the marketing cover, which is genius, uh, uh, prevent anyone from reading this book. I was riveted by this. You and I happen to share very similar economic and political ideology. I like the way you wrote it. I think it's very wise. I think it's judicious. I think it is a call to action. It's a great education. I'd like to have you end and retell the story of your encounter with Russian President Putin when you met with him. And would you include some of the details? Because some of the details about just the logistics of it and the manipulation is so telling about what happens in a free society, what happens at the White House versus what happens at the Kremlin. I do not believe naively that all U.S. presidents are ethical or all U.S. presidents don't have you know, moral issues. That's, of course, um, uh, absurd. But would you just share that story as much as you'd like? I'm mindful of the time. And what should the world take away from that? Well, if you meet a British prime minister or uh, the American presidents that I have met, they are pretty easygoing. They try not to impress you by any kind of symbols of uh, their, their power. 
uh, in Britain, I was received uh, from a prime minister with his shirt sleeves up and uh, basically really entertaining a conversation on ice to ice level. In Russia, it used to be a bit more complicated. It happened after one of our editors, Paul Klepnikov, got uh, killed after um, most likely after a story about tax evasion of Russian oligarchs. And in that context, uh, I got that invitation. The purpose was to to convince me to continue to do business in Russia. But the, the whole way how it was uh, kind of organized was already all based on this idea to, to, to basically show power and impress. And that started by keeping me waiting for a few hours before the meeting then started by giving me an escort to the to the airport later in order to not miss my plane uh, back. Um, but also then the way how this whole conversation, I had to bring a translator, although Putin spoke pretty perfect German and the translator didn't say a word. Um, and uh, he spoke with this very, very slow, soft uh, voice where you really carefully have to listen in order not to, meet a word, to, to miss a word. So everything was really based on I want to I want to impress and I want to show my power and I want to create a difference, a gap between the visitor and the and the uh, and the president. And then also content wise, I mean, what you could really feel that there is this um, this feeling of a former superpower who became uh, over time a middle power and who felt extremely driven by an inferiority complex towards the United States, these expressions, we are not a colony of the United States, we have our own pride, our deeper and older culture, and so on. So you could already feel that there is an anger, and that there is an idea to recreate a bigger, a greater Russia. Um, and there is little strategic interest to join forces on strategic matters with democracies but it is more a conflict of systems. I think one could really literally feel it then. It was in 2005, so long before uh, things really got worse. But in a way, uh, between the lines, you could read, there is a guy who really wants to create a bigger Russia, who wants to drive uh, democracies and democratic neighbors further down uh, in order to increase its own power I think that was that was something that was you could sense it. Matthias, there is a rising um, sense in the U.S. that we're tired of being the policeman of the world. That it's time for someone else. It's it's extraordinarily expensive. It's distracting. Our country has you know uh, massive problems of our own, and that that you you hear a lot of Americans say. That's not our job, that's not our business, why are we doing that? And isn't kind of as simple as, well, someone's gonna play that role. And it's either going to be the US and, the ally, and their allies, or it's going to be China and their allies in the next 15 years, so pick one. I mean, isn't it as simple as that? I'm very aware of that sentiment in the United States, and I understand that so very well. You don't believe it. I, I, I feel every American who says, why are we the world police who always pays for other people's bills? That is a very fair point. Now, I would turn that around and say, 
don't do it for others. Don't do it for the Europeans who are very difficult and slow and sometimes uh, complicated and so on. All, all understandable. Don't do it for anybody else. Do it for yourself. Because you, as the leading democratic power of the world, you will not win that battle if you're going to fight it alone. You will only win it in an alliance. And the bigger picture is very clear. China has the aspiration to become the world uh, uh, power number one. China is looking for more and more allies in the non-democratic world to build that alliance that we spoke about. The main idea is to discredit and basically to weaken the leading democracy of the world, the United States. Now, if the US thinks that they can do it unilaterally, America first, America only, or however, I'm 100% sure this is going to go wrong. It's not going to work. If America does it with allies, even if they are difficult, it's a pretty safe case uh, to win. And that's what I would recommend. Again, not out of altruism. Don't do it for others. Do it for yourselves. And be a bit forgiving with the Europeans. At the same time, I'm also saying the Europeans also need to reach out to the Americans because if Europe thinks that they can do it alone, we are lost. I mean, Europe will be a theme park for nostalgic tourists around the world to look a bit about, uh, to check a little bit the medieval sites. But no value creation is going to happen in Europe if we think that we can solve these big trade policy issues and these big security policy issues alone. We need each other. Europe and America need each other and democracies need each other more than ever in order to save the open society model, which is so joyful to, to live in. We, we should do it for fun, for pleasure, and not as a duty. Matthias Dofner, there were many ways you could have invested the last 45 minutes of your time. I'm truly honored and grateful that you chose to come on and, and speak to me today and the millions of people that are, are dedicated to creating societies, corporations, governments, schools, communities, religious houses of worship, where people can uh, unleash their greatness and pursue their passions that can only take place in a free, democratized society. Your book is The Trade Trap, How to Stop Doing Business with Dictators. You cannot miss this book off the shelf. It is, for those listening, a bright orange with yellow neon cover. I appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Scott. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs>